This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. The legal information presented on In Legal Terms is meant to provide general information about the topics discussed and is not necessarily the opinion of Mississippi Public Broadcasting. The information conveyed does not create any type of attorney-client relationship. Please consult an attorney provider before making any decisions about your specific legal question. Welcome to In Legal Terms from MPB Think Radio, the show all about you and your rights. I'm Liz Gill. I'm with Professor Richard Gershon of the University of Mississippi School of Law. Hello, Professor Gershon. Good morning, Liz. Uh, from up here in uh, sleety and snowy Oxford. We're kind of surprised about it. All right. Now, we're still in Southtown here in, <laughs> in the Jackson area, and I'm sure the coast, it's just a sludgy fall day. Well, it's kind of interesting. It was 67 degrees here yesterday, and, and uh, things changed quickly. But, you know, we, we have a great show today. Um, it is always wonderful to have uh, Associate Dean uh, Stacey Lantain on to talk about intellectual property law. Uh, she has been on before. She is a published scholar, but also a published author as well. And this is an area that is always fascinating. So we, we, can't, we can't wait to talk about uh, intellectual property with uh, Dean Lantain. So, we appreciate uh, you being here, uh, Dean Lane Tane. Thank you so much for having me. And so, Stacy, uh, you, you've talked about copyrights and trademarks on the show before, and I think there's a lot of confusion people have between those two. Could you tell us what's the difference between a trademark and a copyright? I know yeah. it takes 15 weeks to do it in <laughs> class. But. There, there is a lot of confusion, though. I see people get this wrong all the time, um, even... No offense to professional journalists, but many professional journalists will will get that wrong frequently. Um, so, copyrights cover original works of authorship. So they're about works of creativity. So they're books, uh, photographs, poetry, movies, songs, uh, sculptures, paintings. All of those things are covered by copyright. Trademarks are very different because trademarks are all about commerce. So trademarks are source identifying symbols or logos or words that tell consumers when you're out there trying to purchase something in the marketplace, it's a shorthand for you as to what it is that you're trying to purchase. So if you want to go buy a computer, when you go to the store, it's a shorthand that you can use to say, I want one manufactured by Apple. That's their Apple trademark, and it's helping you to purchase something out in the marketplace. Um, Nobody ever owns a word or a color independent of its use in the marketplace. So you'll hear that said a lot. Um, But we all know that Apple doesn't own the word Apple because you can go to the grocery store and you can buy apples, the fruit. The only thing that Apple owns is the word Apple as applied to an enormous array now of, of personal computing and electronics and all that kind of stuff. But that's what a trademark is. It has to do with commerce. Well, that sounds great. I know that... um it, uh, uh, recently, the Ohio State University tried to trademark the word the, mm-hmm. the Ohio State, and they lost that, that suit for that reason. It sounds like you can't take that word and make it yours. Yeah, and it's, you know, there are lots. Actually, somebody did a study, and I think all 10,000 of the most commonly used words in the English language are trademarks for something. But the thing is, you can't own that word for something really broad, right? And my understanding was that Ohio State University wanted to own the for very broad swaths of, like, merchandising and stuff. And that's not what we're doing with trademarks. You can't be the only person who can use a word on a T-shirt is, is generally what we're trying to avoid with trademarks. 
Well, in education, mm-hmm. we talk about fair use. And I know that uh, I have used uh, copywritten material and copyrighted material. I don't know why I call it copy- <laughs> copyrighted material and, uh, and probably trademarks and PowerPoints and things like that. Was, was that all right for me to do? Yeah, so um, fair use is a copyright doctrine that's really kind of consumer's main, well, I say consumers because copyright has become so commercialized, but it's really people's main defense against copyright infringement is what fair use is. So everything out there in the world is copyrighted, and fair use allows you to use that stuff in certain circumstances. And so one of those, there's a section in the statute, and it tells you the kinds of things that we think are okay, and one of those things is educational uses, right? That we want, we want people to have the ability to use copyrighted works to teach. That seems like something that we we want to encourage. And so most of the time, educational use will protect what you're doing with copyrighted materials. There are, of course, limits to that. And so um, professors have in the past, or Kinko's has in the past, gotten into trouble for copying course workbooks, right, where you would just, the professor goes and gets all of the copyrighted materials and puts it all together and then just gives it to the students for basically free. And that has been found across the line, right, that you can't just buy one textbook and copy that for all of your students. But to use copyrighted photographs in your PowerPoint presentations, that's fairly common, and I think most people would say that's that's covered by fair use. Now what if I write a book? <laughs> And I don't want to charge my students to use that book, so I post an electronic version of that book on online, and you know, and that's with a publisher. That book I published. Right. So I was going to say you can do whatever you want with the stuff that you write, and in fact, many people. Um, so that's something to know about copyright. Everything that you are creating is copyrighted as soon as you are creating it, as soon as you're writing it down. So that book that you are writing, it already has a copyright on it. But you can do whatever you want with your copyrighted works, right? Like you can make them available for free all over the place. And in fact, um, many people do. They have these things called Creative Commons licensing that says, hey, this is if you want to use it for non-commercial stuff, go for it. I don't really care. Once you have a publisher involved, that probably gets um, dicier, and that might be based on your contract with the publisher, right? That the publisher might say that you can't do that particular thing. But when you're the copyright holder, you're the one in control. You can do whatever you want. Nobody says that you have to keep your copyrighted work from being shared with people. That's great. Now, Liz, you probably want to give out the number so people can call in. We do. Our number for people who want to participate in this wonderful conversation about intellectual property with our guest, Professor Stacy Lantang, they can call 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. You could also send us an email. Our address is legalterms at mpbonline.org. Mississippi is such a great creative area, and social media has risen up so much that uh, this applies to almost everyone. Nobody wants to have uh, anyone come knock on their door. We don't want to reenact another Napster incident. So this applies to everyone. So if you have a question in your life about how this might affect your day-to-day life, we would love for you to give us a call, one 672 
888-727-7464. And I bet the kiddos don't even know what Napster is. <laughs> they probably don't. Uh, I, I had lots of friends who used it, though, and got lots of music off of it. But, you know, that, that you know, you've mentioned memes before. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's you know, Twitter is one of those places where people maybe take, a, uh, you know, a, a picture, a photo somebody did and use it to, to create their own meme. And is that problematic? Um, so photographs are copyrighted. And so when you are sharing those photographs on Twitter, theoretically, yeah, that's copyright infringement, right? There you go. That's what you've done. You've copied somebody's copyrighted work without their permission and distributed it to others. Um, one of the things that comes up is, well, who really is the author of a meme, though, right? Like you're taking that photograph, but you're imbuing it with a completely different Meaning, And so maybe you do have some kind of authorship right that's going on with that meme. Um, another thing is, is it some kind of fair use, right? Like you're having a social media discussion. That's what you do with, with photographs and social media. Everybody's used to them, you know, sharing it among the community conversation. It's actually a really unsettled point of law. Um, it hasn't been litigated out, really. We have one case where the judge seemed skeptical that the posting of a photograph without permission on social media was fair use. Um, what I do know is that we have seen an uptick in photographers suing people on social media for distributing photographs without permission. And it's not just, you know, it's not like news photographs. It's like they're memes, they're jokes, right? Like that's what you would call a meme. And we have seen people suing over that. And so I think we're going to need to to grapple with this as a society, but so far we don't really have a lot of people thinking about it. It's just kind of a thing that's that's going on every day. Um in fact, Giphy just and uh issued takedown notices, I think against BuzzFeed. I can't remember now which which website it was for Baby Yoda gifts that they were taking Baby Yoda gifts off because those are all copyrighted. And if you've been on the internet at all lately, there are Baby Yoda gifts everywhere. And so that really does raise the issue of, okay, everything is copyrighted, but this is also how we're having our cultural conversations these days. And maybe we should we should think about that. And who is going to watch Mandalorian without wanting to see Baby Yoda? Right. And and what's really interesting about that is I'm doing research on Disney, and I had pulled it aside thinking that Disney was the one that was taking them down. And then it came out that it was Giphy, which is like, I don't really know what they do. They're like a clearinghouse that makes gifts or that, that you can go to them and they have like a repository of gifts. And I was like, Giphy thinks it owns the copyright to Baby Yoda? I bet that Disney has something to say about who owns the copyright to Baby Yoda. So, yeah. I mean, it's free marketing for Disney, right? So, Oh, yeah. Let's go ahead and take one call before the break. Let's go to Charles, who has called in from Mobile. Charles, thanks for being a part of In Legal Terms today. Go ahead. Yes. Uh, Excuse me. You said that no one can own a word. Can they trademark a word? Right. So when they remember one basketball coach owns the word three peat and made money off of T-shirts when his team or some other team went to the NCAA three times in a row. Yes. Um, So no one can own. So you can trademark a word. But when you trademark that word, you have to trademark it in connection with a particular category of goods or services that you're going to use to market. And so that's why I say you can't really own the word because he might, I don't know about the 3P. In fact, I'm trying to look it up while I'm talking to you. Um, Because he might own 3P 
in connection with merchandising, in connection with T-shirts, in connection with mugs. A lot of trademark scholars, including me, have a lot of issues with the the enormity of what you're giving away when you say only one person can make a T-shirt with a word. That seems like a free speech issue. But setting that aside, he doesn't own the word 3P if I want to go and open a cafe and use that word 3P, right? Like, as long as it's not confusing, I should be okay. If I want to start marketing airline services under the word 3 he can only own that word around the penumbra of the goods that it's connected to. Now, we have been expanding trademark holders' rights steadily in this country over the past century or so. So I'm saying that, and it's true that you will see trademark holders go to court to grab a lot of area. They, they think they own a lot. Um, I would submit to you that I'm not sure the law necessarily supports everything that trademark holders go into court and, and claim that they own all the time. That's not me saying that they're always lying. They're not. They are protecting their good. But just that we need to watch out for it. They will always claim that they own the word, and they don't own the word. They own the word as connected to the goods and services that they are using that word with. All right. Thank you, Charles. We appreciate you calling in today. We're going to continue our discussion of protecting created ideas and copyright and intellectual property with Dean Lantang after the break. So if you have a question, call in 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-672. 7464. You could also send us an email to our address, legalterms at mpbonline.org. Hey, can I share my Netflix passwords with my kids? What if my kids are 30 and they have their own apartment? You're listening to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. Hello, I'm Dr. Nancy Lotridge-Anderson, president of New Perspectives, a fee-only financial advising firm and co-host of Money Talks. For over 10 years, Money Talks has been answering your personal financial questions and sharing knowledge about money management. Money Talks can be heard Tuesdays at 9 a.m. on MPB Think Radio. Podcasts can be found on our website, money.mpbonline.org, or on your smart device's podcasting platform. Welcome back to In Legal Terms. Now, not everyone has a chance to listen to our whole show live. If you've missed any of our program, you can listen to the show at inlegalterms.mpbonline.org. It's also available on the MPB Public Media app, as are all our local shows. I'm Liz Gill here with Professor Richard Gershon from the University of Mississippi School of Law. This morning, we're talking about intellectual property with Dean Stacy Lantang. So, Professor Langtang, what about sharing my Netflix Flix login? I pay for it, and if my kids were five, you know, and r- looking at it in their bedroom, is that okay? What if they're 30 and their apartment is across town, or what if they're 30 and their apartment is in San Diego, California? Right. So there's actually, I think, two things in play here. So one of them is all copyright holders have a right of public performance, meaning that they have the exclusive right to control when the public gets to see whatever it is that they have created. 
Um, and so every time something is streamed, theoretically, that is a public performance because the public is sitting there, right, and they are watching the performance. Now, the thing that has always been tricky for us when it comes to the public performance, right, which has is, which is always existed, is this idea of at what point are you just sitting in your house sharing it with your friends where we're, that's okay, that's not the public, versus you are sharing it with 10 million of your friends and now that becomes the public, right? And so you brought up Napster and that was really kind of one of the sticking points that was happening with Napster is that people were downloading music and, you know, the musicians were, well, some of the musicians, some of the record labels were upset about this and people were saying, well, but it's the same as making a mixtape for my friend, right? Like I could always have copied CDs from my friends. Like why is it any different now? And the problem was, well, what the record labels were arguing was, well, this is not your friend anymore. Like, this is just the general public, right? Like, you've just made it available to the general public. So the thing with sharing of the passwords, partly it's an issue of how many, like, if you post your Netflix password to your Facebook, that's probably going to be considered public to to a court, right? That you're sharing that with just the public. Even if your friend's locked on Facebook, we do have cases that say that that doesn't really matter because people's Facebook circles of friends, right, are like hundreds of people big. And so they're like, this is, this is we're moving beyond your close circle of friends. Um, but if you're just sharing it with your kids, you know, a lot of people would say, well, that's your family, right? Like, is that really public? And so I think that what really comes into play here, um, and full disclosure, I don't have Netflix. and I don't have, So I, I'm not sure what their terms of use are, but I'm thinking that there's a contractual relationship between you and Netflix that is saying something about who it is that you can share your streaming password with. Well, in fact, we got a Hulu subscription mm-hmm. and, uh, our daughter is in college in California and could not use our Hulu subscription because she they base it on uh, home and the end. So you have a, you have to pick a home network, and they'll let you use a certain period of time away from home just in case you're traveling. But once you get past that time, she had to get her own Hulu. Right. So. There's all sorts of ways that they crack down. It's actually I have to say it's a little bit annoying. I have a Spotify Prime like premium streaming account. And they've started to like ask for your address to make to check to make sure you're the right person. That's so great if you are not a person who has moved like 15 times in the past <laughs> six years. And I'm like, I don't know what my Spotify address is. Like, yeah, I mean, I think that they think that's sketchy, and I think that's that's just life in academia. Like, I was just moving around a lot. So, yeah, exactly. All right, we've got uh, Jim from Hattiesburg who has very nicely held on. We're so glad he has a question or a comment for in legal terms. Go ahead. Uh, good morning and hotty toddy. I morning. wanted to say that. Good morning. I, I wanted to say that uh, uh, it's my understanding that during the Clinton administration, a uh, bit of history was made in that the government of the United States granted the first in perpetuity uh, trademark to the Walt Disney Corporation for Mickey Mouse. And I wanted to know if that set a precedent or if it was kind of a one off experience and wouldn't happen again. So I think um, a couple of things. First of all, trademarks, as opposed to copyrights, trademarks can last forever. All trademarks can last forever as long as you are still using the trademark. So um, Mickey Mouse being an in-perpetuity trademark, I guess granting that without requiring them to continue using it would be unusual, but all, all trademarks can last forever as long as you keep using the trademark. And I don't think Disney has any intention of stopping using Mickey Mouse. So I think that they would just get that um, regardless. I think you might be thinking, though, of um, 
because I think it was during the Clinton administration, the Copyright Term Extension Act, which I think was in 96. Now I'm like blanking on my on my dates. Um, but that was commonly known as the as the Mickey Mouse Copyright Extension Act because um, that was dealing with the copyright over Steamboat Willie, which is different than their use of Mickey Mouse to sell their products, right? Like Steamboat Willie is an actual creative cartoon. And that um, was coming close to expiration. Also, Winnie the Pooh was being close to their copyright expiring. So unlike trademarks, copyrights expire after a certain period of time, a very long period of time. It is the life of the author plus 70 years. So it's not, you know, nothing that you are consuming today will be out of copyright while you are still alive. Um, 1998. 1998. There you go. Um, yeah, that makes more sense because the that froze the public domain for 20 years and it just reopened um, this year. So that would make sense that it was that it was 98. So what happened with the Copyright Term Extension Act is the government added 20 years onto everybody's copyright. It was, it, that's 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 what happened. Everybody get an extra 20 years of copyright, um, and so. No copyrights expired for 20 years in this country because everybody had just gotten an extra 20 years added on. So we just started having copyrights expire again this year. That was um, a major event. Um, so, But the thing about the copyrights expiring in, in, in Disney's view is, yeah, that's annoying for them. But they've got Mickey Mouse locked up under trademark. So it's not it's – not, and if you go and you look at the stuff that they're trademark, like they are trying to trademark right now or they have already managed to trademark like – individual scenes of Steamboat Willie, right? Like, they're, they're, you can use trademark to sort of expand your copyright protection. You're not supposed to be, but, but that's definitely a thing that's, that we've seen kind of start happening. Stacey, we, I worked at another law school that was a startup law school, and we didn't have a permanent building when we first opened, and we were in an old Head Start building in North Charleston. And uh, we, uh, there were paintings of Mickey Mouse and Donald Duck on the walls, and that always seemed to me that that was probably some kind of trademark infringement anyway. I think that every time I walk into, you see these in schools a lot, nursery schools especially, that people have just painted murals with, with Disney characters on them. It's probably not, I don't know that it's a trademark issue because the, the hallmark of trademark infringement is a likelihood of confusion. So if, if no one's confused that Disney runs that elementary school, you're probably going to be okay, I think. Um, but but they're probably famous trademarks, and so they could get an under dilution, which is another question entirely. But there is probably a copyright infringement problem, right, because those those are copyrighted pieces of art that someone has drawn. And the thing is, Mickey Mouse has changed in appearance since Steamboat Willie days, right? And so the modern iteration of Mickey Mouse, which is probably what's being painted on the walls, that still has copyright protection. And so I, I always look at that and think, oh, that's probably... A problem. I mean, you could probably try to raise a fair use defense. It's educational. It's not commercial. But, yeah. Jim, we appreciate you calling with your question. If anyone else has a question, we would love for you to be part of our show. We're talking about copyrights, trademarks, fair use, intellectual property, how to keep your works safe, and when can you use someone else's. Our guest is Dean and Professor Attorney Stacy Lantang from the University of Mississippi School of Law. Our number is one 877 672 7464. 
You can also send us an email to legalterms at mpbonline.org. And I think it's safe to say everybody in America, you know, knows of Disney and has had, you know, now we've gotten to the old enough that it has influenced everybody's life. So this is fascinating about the research and scholarship that you're doing on the Disney intellectual property rights. Tell us uh, some more about that. Yeah, so... um I started looking into that because I have um, many young nieces who are obsessed with Frozen. And we watch a lot of Disney at my parents' house. Um, and I was realizing that Disney's movies are very often, like 90% of the time, based on an existing property, right? Like Frozen is a retelling of the Snow Queen fairy tale, um, and all the big ones that you can think of, Cinderella, Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast, um, Aladdin, these are all stories that existed for centuries before Disney you know, put them into movies. Um, what I thought was really interesting, though, is that Disney also has a copyright over all of these movies that it's making, right? Like, Disney has a copyright on Frozen, and they protect that diligently. And there are many stories of Disney suing, um, you know, like those companies that send princesses to little girls' parties, right? And they're dressed as Elsa, and, and Disney's like, well, you can't send Elsa, right? Like, we own Elsa. And the thing that I'm, that I'm researching that I think is really interesting is, actually... We all owned Elsa because the Snow Queen existed long before Disney took the Snow Queen out of the public domain. And so what I'm really looking at is Disney has been raiding our public domain for decades now, and then they get the protection and they occupy the market so thoroughly and so... um, stridently that it's really difficult you know if you try to if you say the word cinderella to your kids they're thinking of disney cinderella they don't have an image of their mind um in their mind of other cinderellas even though cinderella is an ancient fairy tale that that has been passed on to us and so i'm kind of thinking about especially now that disney is such a behemoth company that they really like you know we've got hundreds of millions of people living in this country and most of the creativity we're consuming is coming through like a dozen minds right like the people sitting at disney and that's astonishing to me when you when you think about that and so i'm really kind of looking into um, how that's how that maybe is harming us and how we think about creativity that we think of copyright as a thing that belongs to to Disney and actually it's a thing that we all have you know even when you brought up social media I was thinking in my head when you brought it up yeah we're all creating copyrighted work every single day and that's why social media is is so interesting and then you were thinking of it in terms of what are we doing to other people's copyright and it's like no we are we're creative people all of us are and and I think that that's sort of a thing that's getting lost in the narrative of copyright. Well, it actually, you've mentioned this before. I mean, it actually, in some ways, when I put something out there on social media, I want for people to mm-hmm. like it and retweet it and things like that because that, that's good, even though they may be you know, taking my copyright and right. reusing it. And actually, the terms of use of Twitter are protecting that, right? Like, and I actually just saw this go around again, that people are all outraged that Twitter is taking a license to your copyrighted work. They have to do that. They wouldn't work otherwise because Twitter runs on retweets, and those are all copies of your copyrighted work. So, of course, Twitter has to have a license that it is that it is using that stuff. Yeah. I mean, it's so fascinating. But you know, and you talk about um, uh, people suing for copyright mm-hmm. infringement, and I, one of the areas that you've you've uh, done scholarship in is fan fiction, and fan fiction sometimes actually enhances the author's bottom line. Um, 
I guess that doesn't really happen with Disney if we're if we're using their stuff. Ooh, well, yeah, I saw on your resume that you were on a Harry Potter panel <laughs> about fan fiction. So, ah! <laughs> I, I, t- I talk very very often about fan fiction. I'm always happy to talk about fan fiction. Um, the thing is, though, that Disney Disney is so pervasive in our in our culture that it's actually really hard for not really hard, but it's a challenge for artists to make points without referencing Disney, right? And so even though I actually, you don't usually get a lot of fan fiction around Disney properties. They're kind of not structured that way to create a lot of fan fiction, really. I mean, I'm sure some of it exists because there's fan fiction for everything, but they're not. The huge properties, like Marvel Cinematic Universe has more fan fiction around it than than Disney princesses. But there's a lot of art out there of Disney princesses. And a lot of it is making really interesting commentary, right? Like what, here are Disney princesses who look like regular people instead of, you know, like the stylized things of beauty that Disney princesses have. Here are Disney princesses in costumes appropriate to their actual time period and class, which is not a thing that Disney really worries about, right? And so there's a lot of that stuff happening that fans are engaging with um, that I think is really important and really difficult to have that conversation otherwise, right? Like Because the only thing we have to reference in our cultural conversation that we all have in common is our Disney princesses. I actually teach a seminar on transformative works, and I use Disney princess fan art because all of my students, they know what the references are, right? Like, And that's the only way that you can get that point across. If I drew my own princess and then said, and this is what she looks like this way, and this is what she looks like here, they'd be like, that's cool. Like, they don't care. Whereas it makes a big impact when it's when it's Disney princesses that you're using. Yeah, I know, especially if you go to Orlando and you go to any of the Disney parks, adults are not allowed to wear costumes in the park. So uh, there's a whole genre of individuals who have taken a Disney princess or a prince or a villain and made contemporary ensemble borrowing colors or patterns or themes so they can be in the park and be that character without being in a quote-unquote costume. Right. People, I'm telling you, fans do amazingly creative things that that get really dismissed by by larger culture, but cosplayers who are people who, you know, um, I'm going to butcher this because I'm not a cosplayer myself, and so I'm not sure what their terminology is that they use, but they will like make costumes and dress up as characters and things of that nature. They are so incredibly creative. They do amazing things with it, and they'll do like a modern-day spin, and, and um, yeah, it's, it's incredible. And there are, of course, debates about that as well, um, but it's it's... It's interesting to have these debates. I always think it's interesting because we're literally having a debate about who's allowed to be creative. And that seems like a weird thing to have a debate about because it seems like it should be everyone, right? So it's interesting. And if you would like to be part of this debate, uh, when we come back from the break, we would love for you to call in. Our number is 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464 with your questions or send an email. Legal terms at 
mpbonline.org. We are talking about copyrights, trademarks, fair use, intellectual property with Dean Stacy Lantang, who's also a professor at the University of Mississippi School of Law. So if someone invents a word, let's we talked a little bit about this before. Let's say it's grillax for grill and relax, and they have a blog. Uh, what kind of steps could that person take to protect their invention? We'll talk about some licensing. This is In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. Walker, the lady auto mechanic, host of AutoCorrect. If you're enjoying this podcast, try my podcast, AutoCorrect. We help steer you in the right direction with your car problems. Find me on any podcast platform or at autocorrect.mpbonline.org. You're listening to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. Professor Richard Gershon is our expert, and we hope that you'll subscribe to our podcast. There's so many different podcasting platforms. You could get Stitcher or Podcast Addict. What you do is if you have an Android, you download it to your phone. Apple's, you've already got one on there. You take a plus or the magnifying glass, something that will take you to search for a podcast. Then type in the name of the podcast or the type of podcast you'd like to look for. Ours is called In Legal Terms. It'll bring up our show. You can touch on the photo and listen to all of our past episodes. This morning, we're talking about trademarks and licensing and copyrights with our guest, Dean Stacy Langtang. So, uh, Professor Langtang, what about this Grillax? It's the name of the brand that our digital media strategist uh, here at MPB, that's his other job. He blogs and also goes around grilling meat, and he he invented the word grillax. What are some things he could do to protect that brand for himself? So um, just to, I'm, I'm going to answer that question. I just want to say to the person who called in about three Pete, there are two trademark registrations in connection with hats, jackets, and shirts. And then the other one is in connection with protective covers and cases for portable digital devices, so phone covers. So that's what they own. Um, so Grillax, uh, if you want to, so anybody who wants to own a trademark, what you have to do is you have to start using that word in commerce to sell or offer goods or services. Um, and become associated with it, right? Like it's a it's a form of source identification. That's how you get a trademark. You don't have to register it to get the rights. You can just start using it. It's easier if you register it because you can get rights before you start using it, right? Like and say, I want to I want to own this. If you um, come up with a fantastic idea you, and you're just waiting for the time to use it. <laughs> this happens. I mean, you have to have an intent to use it, but yeah, the we'll give you three years to get your feet under you to find your funding to get your business up and running. Um, this happens a lot. Um, most lawyers would recommend that their clients, when they have an idea, they go and they lock it down right away, right? Like, I want to use this trademark for, for these goods, right? And you have an idea of what you want to do with it. Um, Grillax is interesting because I ran a Google search for it, and there's um, Grillax.com, which I don't know, has something to do. Yeah, that's, that's, is that I think his, that's thing? His, his thing. 
It's all about sharing the excellence of food only created on a grill. I love it. This is, <laughs> I want a grill axe. Um, that's very cool. Uh, so, you know, the way that trademarks work is if you are if you're offering goods or services underneath that, that term, then you can argue that you have that trademark to it. Whoever uses it first, so that's why it's important to lock it up in, because it's based on priority. So whoever uses it first... Um, in a, especially sometimes in a geographic area, right? Like depending on, on what a big deal you are, they um, they get the, the trademark rights for it as long as they continue using it. If you stop using it, once you abandon it, it goes back into the pot for anybody to, to pick up again. Um, but yeah, that's, that's basically how that works. You cannot copyright an individual word. You can only trademark a word to offer goods and services under. You can't have a copyright registration on short, on words or short phrases. All right. Well, this is so. This is so interesting. And you know, really. By the way, Liz, we're so lucky to have uh, Stacy on because she's been on one A on NPR and, and speaks all over the country, as you mentioned. And this is such a fascinating topic. Um, you know, so let's say I wanted to use a Disney product and I wanted to use it legally and didn't want to get in trouble, uh, but had a, had a legitimate purpose for doing so. What? How would I go about doing that? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I have tried to license music, um, and I could not succeed. And I was, you know, like, I'm a lawyer who does this for a living, and um, they, they, only, they wanted me to license, like, I don't know, 18 million songs. Like that's what, and I was like, no, I only want to license one song. And they, like, they gave me the runaround. Like, they sent me to, like, four different people to, to ask for permission. And finally, the last person just never wrote me back. And that was, my, that was my experience of trying to license. So I've never tried to license with Disney. Um, but theoretically, you should be able to. But I, I, I have a suspicion that it is much harder to license things than, than you might want there to be. And that actually is, I think, why so many people just turn to... Oh, forget it, right? Like because licensing is so difficult that they just—it's easier to do it and then see if you get caught. And what what exactly is licensing? I mean, you know, that, so let's say that you know you can license something. How does that how does that work? So every copyright holder um, has a set of exclusive rights that belong to them, meaning that they are the only people who have the right to do that particular thing. So when it, when you're talking about a song, the copyright holders to the song are the only people who have the right to play that song, right, to publicly perform it. Um, and so when you're licensing, what you're doing is you're getting permission for a particular right. Um, and you can structure a license however you want it to be, right? So um, the terms of use of, like, Twitter and other social media sites, you grant Twitter, I think it's a worldwide royalty-free, meaning you're not going to pay because you can structure a license saying, I pay this much for this use. Um, theirs is royalty-free because you don't pay. Twitter doesn't pay you for use of it. And theirs is non-exclusive, meaning that you can license it to other people as well, right? And, and Twitter can't stop you. But you could also do exclusive licensing, right? And be like, this is the only store that I sell out of. This is the only person who's allowed to make my music. Um, and so you can structure your license however you need to. But basically, the license is you getting to borrow a copyright holder's exclusive right. You're not the copyright holder, but you've got the license that says you've got that right now. 
I was surprised to find out that things like the Georgia Tech fight song is owned by Paul McCartney. And every time the band plays the Georgia Tech fight song, they have to pay a licensing fee. Did he write it or he and just he bought, the, he bought, he bought it? The he bought the rights. He, you know, and I think that, you know, that so it's to your point, I mean, the, the rights themselves become sellable things that people buy. And, oh, yeah. And they are big business. And um, I have not looked closely into the Taylor Swift, Scooter Braun feud that happened over the past couple of months. The main reason I haven't is because those those contracts are not public, and I have a really hard time figuring out what the contract terms were or are from their like non-legal sniping back and forth on social media about it. Um, but partly that's, you know, songs are complicated songwriters have right, have some rights and performers have some rights and then the music labels take the performer rights and then the song and so yeah it, it ends up that people own rights to songs because they've bought them that are not actually the the writer of that song right like very often our copyrights are disconnected from who the original creator was and it's through either licensing or sales of the copyright transfers stuff like that my understanding is that can be very lucrative for the oh hugely hugely lucrative yeah if you if you've got the right stable of stuff, yeah. So if I, if I uh, you know, if I sing a song in, in, in a restaurant and I sing, you know, happy birthday to somebody, do I have to pay a fee for that? Or No more for happy birthday. It's not under copyright anymore. Um, but that's very recent for many years. Happy birthday was under copyright. And that's why when you went to chains, a lot of them would not sing happy birthday, right? They were singing like their made up birthday songs because... Um, the, the music label was was like going around and trying to get royalties every time Happy Birthday got sung, but that was just declared to be in the public domain a few years ago, so we don't have to worry about that anymore. Um, but theoretically, if you are publicly performing, that's the right that belongs to the copyright holder. And so, yeah, that's something that comes up. It comes up a lot for bars and restaurants and things of that nature. Now, what happens is usually those copyrights are all kind of in a clearinghouse and and they'll try to license like 18 million songs at once, right? So they'll be like, here's your blanket license and you can play whatever song you want. And I think that does work well for bars and restaurants. I think it works less well, you know, like when I was trying to license the song, it was for a friend who was making a podcast and she wanted to use like one song as like the theme music. And I'm like, well, she doesn't want 18 million, right? She wants to use one. And I think that that's where the, the challenge can come in on that. Yeah. All right. Well, we're going to take our last break. Uh, hang on, Larry. If uh, anyone else has a call about trademarks, copyrights, intellectual property, fair use, we would love for you to be part of our show. We've just got a few more minutes left. Our number is one eight seven seven mpb ring and the email is legalterms at mpbonline.org. Let's go back and revisit this Mickey Mouse business. It was created in 1928. That's almost 100 years ago. Is he still somebody's property? Is he public domain? We'll ask Dean Stacy Lantain to talk more about that in our last segment. This is In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. On Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit, you get information about foods you should eat to stay in good health and tips on how to stay active. I'm Dr. Josie Bidwell, host of Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit and Associate Professor of Preventive Medicine at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Joining me on the show each week are healthcare professionals who add their expertise to the discussion. 
Listen to the show every Monday at 11 or subscribe to the podcast by searching for Southern Remedy with your preferred podcasting app. Thank you for being a part of In Legal Terms. If you've missed any of our program, you can listen to the whole show, inlegalterms.mpbonline.org. It's also available on the MPB Public Media app and as a podcast. I'm Liz Gill with Professor Richard Gershon from the University of Mississippi School of Law. We're talking with Dean Stacy Ling Tang, who's also a professor at the University of Mississippi School of Law. We're talking about copyright, fair use, trademarks, intellectual property, and we have gotten the calls coming in. We've gotten three calls and an email. We hope we'll get to them. The email, we may have to email you back. Let's go with Larry, who's called in from Memphis. Larry, thanks for being part of our show today. Go ahead. Thanks for taking my call. I was calling in reference to like having a, a sync license for a music game show. Like, you know, the show called Shazam, something like that. I wanted to develop a game show like that, but the use of the music. How do I pay the, 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 the fees for using the music without having to contact each individual copyright holder? Can I get a blank license? Yeah. So um, actually, that we they music, musicians figured out pretty quickly that that was going to be a problem, and so there are um, performing rights organizations. ASCAP is a big one. BMI is a big one. Um, there's another smaller one whose name I'm blanking on. And so you can contact them, and you can get a blanket license. I actually, that's really easy to do. I could have gotten a blanket license really easily. And so if you go to, I think I was on BMI, and if you go to BMI's website, they've got right. information about licensing music. So you're absolutely right. It would be exhausting if everybody who uses music has to contact every single individual musician. Good luck getting in touch with Taylor Swift. But... Right. I think, what but about if Harry you, Fox Agency? I had to go through Harry Fox. Yeah, Harry Fox Agency also does stuff. Yeah, um, and I so they've got you know there are different rights, and each one of them has rights for different rights, and so you've kind of got to like navigate that. But that's a that's that's how it works. Is that there are big performing rights organizations that that handle but those things. What do things. I ask for? You know, what do I do? I ask for a sync license, or what do I actually ask for? So I'm not sure. Are you saying sync license? Like S I N K, right? Sync, like sync. Oh, S Y S Y N C. Oh, right, right. Um, so, I, you know, it's going to depend on what exactly you want to do, where you're broadcasting it. Um, okay. Yeah. So it's there's like a bunch of because there's so many different kinds of rights. There's so many different setups that you can have for these things. Um, I I would get in touch with like one of the performing rights organizations or a lawyer who does this kind of copyright licensing routinely who can who can give you specific advice on what kind of license would be um, the best for you and cover you best. All right. Well, thanks for taking my call. All right. And uh, our producer, our uh, board engineer, Jay White, knows all about the BMI uh, reporting because that is one of his jobs here at MPB. I was going to say, I assumed that you had that. So <laughs> Let's go to Sam, who has called in from Brandon. Sam, thanks so much for being a part of In Legal Terms. Briefly, what's your question or comment? Well, I, I'm just going to add to what it, it came up with the other caller, so I called in ahead of time. But BMI and ASCAP are the two big ones. 
and I, I deal with them all the time uh, with events. And I will tell you, they are, they're really terrific. I mean, you're a little nervous when you're first calling because you don't really know what you're doing. And, you know, once you, I've been doing it now for years, so now it's a matter of course. But, you know, you've got, they set up an account for you and you are assigned a rep and you develop actually a relationship with a rep. I mean, our ASCAP rep stayed the same for about 15 years. And, uh, you know, they, they kind of remember you. They've got the notes on the screen. And uh, uh, ours was dealing with events where we had performers performing, and you had to get the right. Mm-hmm. The ASCAP primarily right, represents songwriters, where BMI primarily represents performers. Right. Now, that's not always exactly the way it works, but there are also several other smaller ones. And the, the, if, if you need to really cover yourself, you got to check what is the what is the performer registered with and usually that's on one of their cds it'll say bmi ascap or one of the other little ones but the little ones generally are for more startup performers however there is and i don't recall the name of it there is a big one for gospel singers and so if you're in a church group and you're having some gospel people come in or you're going to sing their songs you got to be careful on gospel because that's yet another agency so but i i found bmi and ascap just to be really super to deal with and uh very helpful to people who don't know what they're doing which was the way i was when i first started that uh, that might be christian copyright licensing international sam yeah i think that's it yeah so anyway just for anybody who's nervous about it dive into the pool because they're pretty uh they certainly were very helpful to me, and, and it's not, it was not, you know, we, we had events with hundreds of people, but it was not a lot of money. It, it was not something that's going to break the bank. It was very reasonable, and the cost of not doing it, or the risk of not doing it, far outweighs the little benefit you're going to have by having a few extra hundred dollars in your pocket, because if they do catch you, they can... It, put in some pretty significant penalties and it's pretty black and white you're going to have to pay it sam we appreciate you calling in with that information i hope that will make um larry and maybe our other listeners a little uh feel a little bit better about doing the right thing the legal thing by contacting them jerry in madison we would love if you could email the show our address is legal terms at mpbonline.org and we will get that forwarded to Professor Stacy Lantang uh, from the University of Mississippi School of Law. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you. Uh, Professor Gershon, I think we wouldn't need two more hours. I think we'd need three more hours to get through all of this information. We'll have to have her back on uh, next semester. That's right. We'll see how her course schedule works out. So for Professor Richard Gershon, who hosts from the University of Mississippi School of Law, I'm Liz Gill. Up next is our Tuesday Southern Remedy Show, Relatively Speaking. But we hope you'll join us again next Tuesday at 10 a.m. for In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast.